Welcome to another edition of the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage and your sex life. And I hope you are prepared for a jam-packed podcast today. We are in the middle of our Heroes of the Faith series, where we are looking at women that history has largely forgotten. Last week, on our first episode of our new season for Bear Marriage, we were looking at Josephine Butler, and this week, Kristen May, that you probably know from Jesus and John Wayne, is going to join us to talk about Catherine Bushnell, a woman that she wrote a book about even before she wrote Jesus and John Wayne. Then after that, we have another interview with a woman with some unique understanding in 1 Corinthians 11 and what man is head of the wife means. So stay tuned for that. But before we get there, a few announcements. We are soon going to be leaving to lovehonorandvacuum.com and going over to baremarriage.com. That's going to be happening hopefully in the next week or two. So keep your eye out for that. Um, also, just a reminder, it always helps us when you subscribe to this podcast. And when you rate it five star, it helps other people find it. So please do that. And without further ado now, here is Kristen. I am thrilled to welcome back to the Bear Marriage Podcast, Kristen Cobas dumay Hello, Kristen. Hey, Sheila. Thanks for having me back. And Kristen is the author of Jesus and John Wayne, which is awesome, but that's not what we're talking about today. No, no, it's not. <laughs> so this is the summer of women's biographies and the book that you wrote before Jesus and John Wayne was a biography of Catherine Bushnell. Which was called what? What? I, you know what? This is terrible. I don't even know what the biography is called. And I've re- rediscovering God's word to women. No, no, it is a new gospel for women. I have it a right new gospel here. for women. Yes, yes, yes. And I've read it. I love it. I sorry, I forgot the title. When you're reading stuff on Kindle, you don't yes. see the the cover of it all the time. Yes. <laughs> I totally get that. And I went back and forth on on this title. So I have to think about it. Like, what did we finally end up with for the title of that book? Yes. Yes. So say it again. A new gospel for women, uh, Catherine Bushnell and the challenge of Christian feminism. Awesome. And I love Catherine Bushnell. I love Josephine Butler more. I have to admit it. I think it's the Canadian in me where like I had relatives who were fighting alongside Josephine Butler. And so she is uh, remarkable, right? Her story more, is so amazing. It is. And I loved how they, they intersected. So Josephine yes. Butler was older than Catherine Bushnell. So she, um, they, they were, co- they were compatriots, but she was going before Catherine Bushnell was, and she yes. died sort of at the height of Catherine Bushnell's career, so to speak. So, so they knew each other and, sh- and she was definitely a mentor to Bushnell, which I think is, is amazing. Yes. Um, but let's paint the picture. So Josephine Butler's over there in, in England and Catherine Bushnell's in the U S yes. and, um, she did three big things. Let's tell me if I get this right. So she started off as a missionary doctor mm-hmm. and then she started campaigning about purity and the sense of holding men to the same standard that we hold women. Yes. And then it became Bible translation. Yes. Yep. All and of those things. Awesome. So let's, let's go back to the beginning. She did so many cool things and we're talking about starting in the 1870s. So this is like, I think her first medical missionary journey was 1879 or something. So yeah. Um, so she was just one of these kind of do-gooder Protestant women. Um, Methodists seem to produce a large number of these in particular. Uh, so she was, as a young woman, she went to uh, college, which was 
not altogether unusual, but she was a bit precocious. Um, and her family had moved to Evanston, Illinois, which was kind of the center for this um, kind of progressive Methodist women's culture. And she met Frances Willard there, who would later go on to found the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So she was really embraced by the women of this community and had a way to kind of hold together her faith and her um, and her sense of uh, life's calling. And it was actually the women in her in her town who who convinced her to go to, um, after, or actually after she decided to study medicine to become a missionary. And she ended up going to China for a couple of years, had a harrowing experience there, um, but kind of faithful missionary work. And that's what introduced her first to, um, the subjectivity of biblical translation. When she saw missionaries, right. Missionaries who cared deeply about the word of God, because they were bringing it to, you know, all the nations who were playing fast and loose with biblical translation, uh, in order to quote unquote, not offend the sensitivities or sensibilities of, you know, heathen people. And so they would translate, um, passages more patriarchal than the original words. Right. And she noticed that first, I think it was, what was it? Philippians four, when it was talking about Euodia and Synced Yeah, yes. My right. I'm I'm not a biblical scholar, so I I will probably butcher some of the pronunciations here. Uh, But yes, uh, that they had changed two women in the story into men, Uh, and and that to her was just shocking because she took the word of God so seriously. Mm -hmm. Every word of scriptures was God breathed and inerrant. And how how dare you, right? And then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden she thought, now wait a minute, if missionaries could do this. What have our biblical translators throughout history done with the text? Um, right. And so she just, that was like in the back of her mind, right? Yeah. That's then she where it all got started. It's exactly. going to come back and like, yeah, save that. Uh, yeah. Then she went yeah. back to the States, uh, ended up getting involved with and hold, hold on I just want to, I just yes. want people to understand this a little more for context. So we're talking about 1879. She goes to China until 1882 and she mm-hmm. was only 24 years old. Yes. Very young. Right out so of she's, med school. She, She's already been working as a physician in a hospital for a while. She's because she was really young when she went to college and everything. Yes. So she's already, and, and she's, she goes across the world. This is a time when there are no planes. We're talking about getting in a boat and there's not a lot of Western people in China. Yes. And she goes by herself as a single woman to join a mission there. Like that's incredible. Yes. Yes. Okay. I mean, she is so, and she always mm-hmm. uh, ends up having uh, close companions. So other women missionaries, right, other mm-hmm. single women at that time. So I think it was Ella Gilcrest that she ended up um, you know, be, becoming close to. And then Ella ended up passing away because it was um, the diseases were rampant and the health of the missionaries was very poor. And yes. Um, but then she came back to the States and then she became involved in the Women's right. Christian Temperance Union. But her cause wasn't just, um, or even primarily alcohol, right. Which was right. And let's just, let's just give people like, cause now when we hear temperance, that has a really negative connotation because we know prohibition didn't work. So prudish, right. Right. (laughs) But at the time, the reason it was such a big deal is because in among the lower classes, especially so many men were drinking away their, their paychecks paychecks, and there was no money to feed the kids. And this was what my great great-grandmother was so involved in. Yes. She had like 10 kids and she was married to a drunk. Yes. And so she was a very, very, you know, smart woman. And she became really involved in this in London. And it was a big thing too, because, so it really was a matter of survival. 
for a lot. It of was survival women. and it ended up being one of the most essential tools for protecting women and for women's mm-hmm. rights. Yeah. Uh, because so many of these men would drink away their paychecks, come home drunk from the saloons, abuse mm-hmm. their wives and children, and mm-hmm. then go off and do it again the next day. Right. And in a patriarchal culture where divorce was very difficult to achieve. And if you did get a divorce, your husband retained custody of the kids. So that was not an option for the vast majority of women. You Mm -hmm. are trapped. Mm -hmm. And so the temperance was a way to say, here's how we can make lives better for women by restraining Mm -hmm. alcohol consumption of men. Right. So it was really like a modern anti-abuse movement. It was anti-abuse and a modern, it it was essentially the mainstream women's rights movement to Mm -hmm. a significant degree in the late 19th century. Right. And so she fit right in. A lot of Christian women were like totally Mm -hmm. in on that cause. Yes. But for her, it wasn't mostly about the alcohol. It was the other side of it, which is she got really involved basically like Josephine Butler in the sex trafficking side of it. Yes. So she ended up settling in Denver and, um, started, uh, as a medical doctor and volunteering with the WCTU, but very quickly we, she was drawn into this kind of new branch actually of the movement that she helped then to create as a department, which was that of social purity within the WCTU. Now that's a kind of euphemism, euphemism for sexual purity, right? So this is Victorian era. Uh, Most people weren't talking a lot about sex. Uh, Bushnell was the exception, (laughs) but she said, and she convinced a lot of Christian women, Hey, we have to talk about sex because we Mm -hmm. have to talk about abuse. Right. Right. And so she started working with prostitutes in Denver. Mm-hmm. Denver was a pretty rough and tumble place in the 1880s still. And, um, and so she was working with prostitutes to help restore them and to protect them, um, give them legal protections and so on and quote unquote redemption. Right. Which right. in that day, people saw her as, uh, or most people saw prostitutes as fallen women just give up right yeah. They're They're, they're beyond redemption and they can be right. used and abused. And so she right. started working with them and realized very quickly on that this was a much broader problem and that the root of the problem was the sexual double standard. The idea that men could be men, you know, boys would be boys and you can't really hold them to high standards of morality. Um, but women have to be unsullied, perfectly pure. And any woman who is not, even though through a fault of her own or no fault Mm -hmm. of her own, didn't matter beyond redemption. She said, this is not Christian and this is not Mm -hmm. biblical. And so she took on that entire ideology. Um, first WCTU, she does this mass investigation of the brothels in Michigan and Wisconsin lumber camps, but that's just kind of the backdrop, this investigation to really focus in on the theology that Mm -hmm. it is respectable Christian men and women who are perpetrating these abuses and defending them. And that turns her to the theology. Yeah, I got, I have a a quote that you wrote about this. She says, appalled to find so many upstanding citizens coming to the defense of local brothels. Bushnell was particularly distressed to find that some virtuous, God forbid the misnomer, women considered the degradation of young girls necessary for the protection of their own virtue, having embraced the belief that such girls provided an outlet for men's natural iniquity. Yes. 
Exactly. I mean, it's, it's horrifying to read that. And she was horrified because like many Protestant women, she had been raised in this, you know, purity and morality mm-hmm. and, and had believed that and had believed that this was for all Christians, not just for women. Mm-hmm. And she also believed that, you know, there was redemption and that was the heart of Christianity. And what she realized shockingly is that she was, uh, you know, the minority on that. Mm-hmm. So that was all before she came into touch with Josephine Butler, but yes. it was after Butler saw what she had done in yeah. the United States that Butler said, why don't you come over here when we need to meet, <clears throat> excuse me. And then um, Butler asked her and her friend, Elizabeth Andrew to lead the similar kind of investigation mm-hmm. into the brothels in uh, colonial India. Right. That which was sponsored the, by the, the British, Army. British military was. Is exactly. setting up, actually setting up, not just, you know, not just using, but actually setting up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Horrible stories. Yeah. And so she does that investigation, gets international attention. And, and here the, the, the situation is even more starkly set up for her, which is here you have white Christian respectable men, right? The British mm-hmm. empire civilization. And again, Western Christianity, that's who these guys are abusing Mm -hmm. women in this case, heathen women, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. non-white women. Um, but they were supposed to be the civilized Christians bringing this civilization and Christianity around the globe. They were not, they were abusing women in horrific ways. And that's, um, that just presented so starkly to Bush now the situation. And that is when she ultimately Actually, it was a, a later visit back to colonial India where she read about this brutal rape of a Burmese woman at the hands of several mm-hmm. men from the British military. And that's when she has opened the scriptures in front of her and said, this crime is the fruit of the theology. And she had to face the fact that these were not men who were doing this despite their religious faith. These were men who were acting with such cruelty towards women. Mm-hmm because of their Christian faith. Yeah. Which is just horrifying. You know, um, when you look at how she describes the way that people justified the brothels and the sex trafficking, I don't see how that sounds any different from every man's battle today. Like, I I feel like we're still fighting the same thing. Yes. Yeah. To a large extent. It was, it was quite something reading Bushnell, you know, first (laughs) the, the, the history that I uncovered and uh, her work against abuse to call Christians to account for the sexual double standard. This mm-hmm. was over a hundred years ago that she started this work. And, uh, and it just feels so very present mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, purity culture. We have the sexual double standard very much <laughs> alive and well, but mm-hmm. what we don't have today, which we did have in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s is a whole bunch of Christian women, evangelical women out Mm -hmm. on the front line saying enough of this, right. And calling men to account. You have some of that going on, but you don't have this mass movement anymore. And that, uh, you know, what a sense of loss as a historian, it's often tempting to Mm -hmm. think that things are getting better through history, right. We're becoming more enlightened. And, and when you look at stories like this, when you look at women's history, often, uh, you think, oh, this is not a story of unrelenting progress. In some ways, it's one step forward and two steps back. Right. So Bushnell got quite famous in writing several reports about India and then coming home and writing several about the U.S. She was very famous, but she was also 
very stressed, losing some ground. And at that point, Josephine Butler invites her instead. Yes. How about if you start a change track, change tactics, and just talk about the Bible? Yes. And that's what she did. So she moves to England Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she becomes a blogger. (laughs) that's a great great example or great uh uh, illustration she yes she starts a correspondence course so these mimeographed um papers that she is reading the scriptures and uh, i never mentioned that before she began her study of medicine as a college student she had studied the classics so she knew greek she taught herself hebrew and she um refused to believe that the distortions of the scriptures that she was reading about women's subjugation to men and this patriarchal authority and the sexual double standard that they were really contained within the Christian scriptures. And instead she started to think about what about those translations? What about the men who had translated the scriptures for centuries now? And so she went back to the Hebrew and the Greek texts, and she started to see a pattern of mistranslations and misinterpretations. And so she started this correspondence course. She was visiting British libraries. I mean, her papers now are held. You, know, you can see these correspondence courses that uh, draft after draft after draft, just piles of them in the British library. Oh, that's so cool. I want to, oh, that's there are awesome. so many, there are so many, <laughs> and you can read the drafts as like, like what I wrote about in a new gospel for women is just the tip of the iceberg. I, somebody really needs to write a comprehensive mm-hmm. history of just that book, God's mm-hmm. word to women, which is how she eventually published those lessons. Cause there's a whole book just describing the process and the changes and the edits that she made. And then women, a small group of women would pay her, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like Substack. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, the Patreon, Substack, yes. 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 <laughs> For these lessons that would circulate. And so the final project was a book, God's Word to Women, that contains just all kinds of mind blowing retranslations, reinterpretations of the Christian scriptures, passages that refer to women, to sex, to gender, mm-hmm. from Genesis through revelation. And honestly, when I was first reading this book, I thought this cannot be real. What do I even do with this? And why have I never heard of this before? And, um, because it is really revolutionary, but she did this all as a conservative Christian by conservative. I mean, theologically, right. She identified as a fundamentalist, uh, against modernists. She took every word of the scriptures seriously as God's word, which was why she was so angry when she saw men mistranslating and misinterpreting those scriptures. Yeah. And I want, I want to, I want to read another quote um, that I've picked out from your book. Cause I think this is really key. You said, you said, what is perhaps most remarkable about God's word to women is the Bushnell press to revolutionary claims while upholding the authoritative truth of the scriptures. She considered every word of the biblical text inspired, infallible, and inviolable. However, she rejected modern translations as patriarchal corruptions of the true word of God and turned instead to Hebrew and Greek texts as the basis of her theological revisions. So this is not a theological liberal. No, like this is not a woman who says we need to throw out scripture and just have new interpretations. Like this is a woman who remained very true to the original language and intent. Absolutely. So much so that um, because she was was independent, right, writing as essentially kind of a blogger as a woman, she was not given a, a respected you know, position in a in a prominent seminary. She wasn't a pastor of a church. She was just 
a woman, a reformer who, who was mm-hmm. doing this on her own really. And so she didn't get a publisher. She self-published this book. It wasn't reviewed in a whole lot of places, but I did track down several reviews. And what was really surprising to me was just to see how positive those yeah. reviews were from conservative Protestants. Yeah. One was pastors. from Moody, I think. One was from Moody. And it was, <laughs> you know what, essentially it's like, we don't agree with every interpretation that she makes, but we have to say, it's, you know, they're at least as good as the the standard ones and definitely take a look at this. And they, they gave, gave her work the stamp of approval because they saw that she took every word of the scripture seriously. And in this fundamentalist modernist battle over the, you know, how do we read the scriptures? She was so firmly on their side and they knew it. Right. Which is, which is a very interesting thing. Okay. So I, I want to look at two in, yes. in your book, Kristen, you know, you, you go through, first Corinthians 14, which is the first thing that she yeah. tackled, you know, first Corinthians 11, Ephesians five, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to take two quick snapshots that are, that people can easily understand. Okay. The first is deacon. <laughs> Our listeners may not know this, but the Greek word diakonos okay. is translated differently when it refers to a man or refers to a woman. So you said this in a similar vein, Bushnell pointed to the Greek word diakonos, which was translated as minister or deacon in each instance where it referred to an office held by a man in the church, but was rendered servant in the single instance where it referred to a woman, Romans 16, one that's Phoebe, despite the fact that it was distinctly stated that this is her rank in the church and ecclesiastical order. And Bushnell has no time for that, right? She yeah. like enough of these different weights and measures, right? Enough mm-hmm. of this. What we want is God's word, yeah. unadulterated, and we want it equally applied, translated. We want the same words applied the same ways. And what she early on discovered is uh, in, in so many different words in the Old Testament and in the new, a different set of translations or possible possible translations, if that word was describing a man or if mm-hmm. it was describing a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I don't know how to, here's another example. I don't know how to say this word. Yeah. I, I read it all the time. This is the problem with living online when yeah. you always read and you never hear anyone say it. It's like, I don't actually know. So chi- is it Hyo? Hyo. So I asked my brother-in-law who's a Hebrew scholar and he's, you know, so I'm probably still getting it wrong, but Hyo or C-H-A-Y-I-L. Right. And the, the problem is when it's a man of Hyo, it is a man of valor. Valor. Strength. Yes. Right. But when it's a woman of Heil, it is a woman of virtue, virtue. virtue. <laughs> so, but it's the exact same word. It is. It is so the same word. Men get to be valorous and strong and brave and women get to be virtuous. Exactly. And she has just, uh, I, I can't remember how many she counts them up all the times that the word is used to describe a man. It's strong mm-hmm. army strength, like all these things. Mm-hmm. And then women, it is virtue. So, now, so, so here's examples, you yes. know, Boaz in the Ruth and Boaz story was a man of valor. Mm-hmm. And yet Ruth was also a woman of valor, but that's a woman of virtue. Woman of virtue. Yeah. Even though same word. Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. <laughs> the famous yes. one, woman of virtue who can find, right? Not yes. even though child. We yeah, we see this throughout that when it's a man, it's valor, it's strength. Yeah. When it's a woman, it's virtue. 
And her, her dissection of Proverbs 31 is just brilliant, you know, cause she, she lists all the attributes of, of the woman of Kyle in, in <laughs> Proverbs 31. What is it? She's industrious. She's up early in the morning. She, uh, you know, sells things. She cares for her household. She, I think she dies cloth. I can't remember. Like this is massive list in, in yeah. Proverbs 31, but there's actually no mention of her particular relationship with her husband or her sexual you know, fidelity yeah. in this yeah. long list. And yet they render her a woman of virtue. That's how they right. reduce all of that. And now she says, okay, great. We can look at the root of the Latin word virtue and we can get veer, you know, and that's like reality. And so there's a link there between virtue and valor or this kind of masculine strength. Mm-hmm. But she says, we all know that in the 19th century, right? <laughs> She's ready, yeah. early 20th century. And up to today, virtue means something very specific. It means it's generally reduced to sexual morality and generally applied to women. Yes. And that's how these translators were using it when they were differentiating how we talk about women and then how we talk about men. So we need men to be strong and valorous and we need women to be virtuous. Right. Even though, again, in the original language, scripture did not differentiate that. That is something which is done by translators. And she had, again, remember she worked with all these uh, abused women and uh, prostitutes and former prostitutes. And she said, okay, you want women to be virtuous. How about you, you teach them to be strong first? Cause she saw so many cases where they were abused, where they did not have the power to extricate themselves from these abusive situations. She's like, you want virtue, teach women to be strong because that's what the Bible says. Let me read another quote that you had. So the more she searched the scriptures, the more she came to believe that the abuse of women she had observed in her travels was in fact closely linked to the most sacred institution, Christian marriage. Men could not make women obedient slaves within the marriage relationship, she surmised, without coming to see all women in that light. Exactly. And so she had to tackle this. And then, and then one more thing, she defended her use of the term abuse, insisting that subordination was abuse. Man would feel abused if enslaved to a fellow man, she argued. And the same was true of women. She does not mince words. When I read that, I just thought, what do I do with this? And she also, you know, really the heart, she does a lot of very careful textual analysis, right? Throughout the scriptures, Mm -hmm. very careful work. But at the heart of her critique is uh, her understanding of who Jesus Christ is Mm -hmm. and her understanding of Christ, biblical understanding of Christ is uh, the incarnate word of God who divests himself of power Mm -hmm. and gives his life for the redemption and restoration of all things. So she says, okay, man, why on earth would you be claiming power? over women when the Mm -hmm. very model of Christ is divesting of power, Mm -hmm. claiming power and usurping power is not the way of, of, of Christ. It, right. She goes back to Genesis. That's the way of the devil, right? That's the way of sin. (laughs) And so the patriarchy is a disobedient response and women who align themselves with patriarchy are aligning themselves with sin. And, and so for her to live according to Christ, um, and according to God's plan and in the redemption of Christ is, is to live as liberated women who can mm-hmm. obey their God and not submit and subordinate themselves to men. Yeah. And again, this is a woman who was writing 
over a hundred years ago. Yes. Well, a lot of the stuff she was writing about a hundred years ago, but she started in even exactly. more than hundred years ago. Exactly. What struck me too in reading um, your work of her is just how alone she felt, especially at the end of her life. Once yes. she got into the Bible translation, when she was doing all of the, the sex trafficking stuff, she had this network of women around her and then different political things happened within that movement and she lost supporters and, and yeah. felt herself very alone. Let me ask you something. Do you feel like that? Because you're kind of at the forefront of a lot of things. Do you feel like we're more alone or do you feel like we're a network? No, we're not alone. Nothing like Bushnell was. Um, you know, first, you're right. In the in the 1870s, 1880s, she was not alone. She was so supported, financially supported and, uh, you know, emotionally supported, spiritually supported by tens of thousands of women. Um, mm -hmm. through this network of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So she was very well supported. And you could see the amazing work that she did because of that support system for a variety of mm -hmm. reasons, right? Josephine Butler passes away. Frances Willard passes away. You have broader changes in terms of American Christianity, um, the, this growing split between fundamentalists and modernists. You have changes in the women's movement. Um, that make it more difficult for some of these Victorian Christian women to fit in with the mainstream women's movement, all of that's going on. And so she ends up being isolated and you can see how that affects not just her personally, but also um, her platform, right? She doesn't have the same power to disperse her ideas. And I wonder sometimes, you know, if she had been able to write God's word to women, her book 30 years earlier when she was at her prime and when she was well-networked. I think mm -hmm. it would have had a dramatic impact instead, mm -hmm. by the time she finally was able to cobble together this book, didn't have a publisher, didn't have an editor, didn't have a distribution system. You know, a few people found it and it changed their lives. And you can kind of trace how it was, how it was passed along through American Christianity down through the 20th mm -hmm. century. And it, it was powerful, but its influence was very limited. I don't think we're in the same boat at all. Like I said on Twitter the other day, man, if, if Kate Bushnell had had Twitter, yes. <laughs> she, first yes. of all, she was very sarcastic and she was very blunt and, uh, you know, she would have been amazing and she was meticulous, but, um, just the reach. Right. Uh, and that's what we have. We have, um, we can come from nowhere. Like I did, I spent years in the archives doing this research published with an academic press, you know, several hundred people read it and that's great. Um, but now we have blogs and we have Twitter and Facebook and we have podcasts. And so we can take this uh, information and tell these women's stories and share what is actually generations of Christian women doing amazing, remarkable and liberating work. And, mm -hmm. um, that work can find its, its audiences. And it's really, it's really fun to be able to do that for Bushnell, especially because she had been almost entirely abandoned and forgotten by the time she died in her early nineties. Mm -hmm. And now to think that her work could be resurrected and, and on the one hand, it's very tragic that it still is very timely and it speaks to where we are. <laughs> on the other hand, there's something redemptive about being able to bring her voice into this moment. Mm -hmm. I want to bring up this one quote. This was early in the book as you're setting up the book. So we're reflecting on her whole life. You said time and again, women have wrestled with the Christian scriptures and have penned intriguing and insightful commentaries only to have their work quickly forgotten, leaving each generation to begin the task anew. 
And I know it's, it feels like all, all the arguments about what first Corinthians 14 really meant or what first Timothy two, she already dealt with all that, like over a hundred years ago. And we're still talking about it, but hopefully now, you know, if more people read about Kate Bushnell, you know, we won't have to do this from scratch anymore. Now there's so many people saying it. We do have Twitter. We do have numbers again, and, and hopefully we won't have to keep reinventing the wheel this time. Hopefully, you know, and one thing I noticed too early on when I started talking about her work, a lot of conservatives, conservative men in particular have kind of written off all of Christian feminism as that's something recent and it's secular Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of 1970s women's livers and they've got all their arguments down pat instead of bringing somebody like uh, Bushnell. No, Mm -hmm. no, no. She was way before women's livers, right? She's working in the late 19th century. Oh, also she identified as a fundamentalist, right? You know, so, so, so now you got to listen to her. You can't just write her off. And then maybe that will open you up to some of the more recent work as well, but she's a lot harder to dismiss for people who already have all their arguments lined up for why they're not going to listen to women's biblical interpretation. All right. Well, I am so glad you could join us. Tell us about your other book. <laughs> I'm absolutely pleased anytime I get the chance to, uh, to share Bushnell's work. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Kristen. And I hope you have a wonderful summer and get a chance to read too. <laughs> thank you so much. So grateful to Kristen for making time for us out of her busy schedule. And now just as Catherine Bushnell um, learned so much more and had so much more understanding of the New Testament when she started studying the Greek and looking at the context. I want to turn to another woman who has recently written an amazingly easy to understand conversational book about how we can look at some of these difficult passages. So here is Julie. Well, I am so pleased to bring on our podcast today, Julie Coleman. Hi, Julie. Hi. And you are the author of this new book, on purpose, understanding God's freedom for women through scripture. I love it. I have read it. I even endorsed it. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for endorsing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think what I like about it, it's like, it like it's, it's an accessible book. Okay. So, so those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see like, it's, it's a good length, but it's not like super, super dense. And what you do is you go through each Well, you interweave it with your own stories, which I love. Like, let's make this stuff personal. Um, But you also go through each of the passages that are often talked about when we, when we refer to a woman's role in scripture and you break it down in Greek and the historical context and all these different things that should come into play with our interpretation. So you deal with each individual passage because I get asked so much about, well, what about Ephesians five and what about Genesis three and what about first Timothy two and what about first Peter three? It's like, they're all there. (laughs) So I I do want to get to a specific passage, but before we do that, how did you get started on this journey yourself? Well, I was raised in a very conservative denomination where women wore head coverings and kept their mouths shut. Okay. And so I thought that was the right way to do things. I mean, it was in the Bible, you know, and, and I always did that, but it was hard because unfortunately God gave me a whole lot of leadership ability and I always (laughs) felt like I was hitting my head on the glass ceiling inadvertently I mean I wasn't trying to do anything you know but I just I I just found myself always trespassing against that boundary line but you know like I say they had a burst for everything so you know I was in because I wanted (laughs) to do what God's word said Um, but uh, over the years one was marrying my husband who was not um, he was in our denomination but was not a fan of those interpretations of those passages and mm-hmm. little by little in studying myself I just started coming around to the conclusion that 
you know, I don't think that means what they think it means. And so <laughs> when I started seeing women and men too, who were leaving the church because of the treatment that they were getting uh, because of gender things, uh, doctrine, and I started people seeing actually walk away from God because they uh, understood him to be this tyrant that only had picked one sex out to be the, you know, the beloved, the, the chosen ones and the rest of the, the, you know, the females were to be second-class citizens. And especially in light of the fact that our society has moved on from that kind of thinking, um, it gets harder and harder for people to accept that the Bible teaches that, which by the way, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is why, which is why I wrote the book, because I thought, you know what, if people are leaving the church, people are leaving God over misunderstood teaching, then if I could just get the truth out there, you know, look at these passages and I'm, I'm a seminary grad. I know how to do that. Look, look at these passages and say, you know, what is it really saying? And so I started the journey and, um, but I was scared to do it because I hate controversy. I'm, I, I want everyone to like me. <laughs> and, um, but I just, it was just too controversial. And I knew I'd get a lot of nasty feedback because I've seen others. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I was afraid and I, I'd write it and I put it down and I'd write again, put it down. And then finally, the Lord just really impressed on me. It's, it's time through a series of events and people that I talked to. And, and I also, in that time period, listened to a lady named Mimi Haddad, who's um, the yes. president for, um, event oh, wait a minute, got the wrong organization, Christians for Biblical Equality, <laughs> wonderful woman, and yeah. loves the word of God, and, but she has love in her heart. And so as she talked, she said, you know, we have, whatever we do in order to help people understand, we have to do it in love. And that was like the missing ingredient for me, because I was more about anger. Mm -hmm. um, from what I've been taught, but now, and I thought, you know what, everyone's just trying to do what the Bible says. We, yeah. uh, Christians want to do that. But the problem is, is how we interpret what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And that's the human component that can go wrong. Yeah. Yes. Cause you can be seriously convicted of something, but at the same time, be seriously wrong. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and well-meaning. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to focus, there's so much good stuff in here. There really is. And, you know, when I was 16 years old, I don't know if I've ever shared this on the podcast before. I think I did. I think I shared it like a couple of years ago on the podcast, but when I was 16 years old, I was really struggling with the role of women in the church. Cause I loved Jesus. Absolutely loved him. Wanted to serve, wanted to be a missionary. Like I wanted the whole bit. Um, but I could not reconcile the fact that he would give me certain gifts and then tell me I couldn't use them. Right. And that was really problematic for me that God would say that he preferred someone over me simply because someone else was a guy you know, that for no other reason, something so arbitrary. And I didn't know how to reconcile those things. I didn't know, like, how can I keep being a Christian and how can I follow a God that wouldn't love me as much just because I'm a girl. Right. Uh, and, and I talked to my pastor, didn't have anything to say to me, but then my aunt gave me some great books and those, those set me on a journey where I really did find freedom, which is exactly what your book is for. And so this is for the a new generation. And again, I just love how biblical it all is in each, in each, and the chapters really are not overly long, but they get to the heart of everything of all of the different passages that are so problematic. So before we, before I hit record, I said to you, Julie, I said, you know what I would love to do? is just focus on one passage. And I told you which one and your reaction was, oh, that's the long one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but 
this is the one I get asked about so much. So I'm going to put you on the spot and I thought we could do first Corinthians 11. Yes. So why don't you set the stage and tell us what the controversy is about first Corinthians 11. Okay. So much controversy. (laughs) You know, I, I, when I was, I had a schedule that I had to keep to in order to make the book deadline three weeks per chapter is what I gave myself. It was intense. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I wrote, you know, I, I kept to that and I knew that I would have time at the end to do this and that before I send in the manuscript. But anyway, I got to first Corinthians 11, which I know very well. I was raised with that passage. Yeah, the head coverings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so um, I screamed to a halt and I just couldn't understand what Paul was doing. And I wrestled with it and I prayed over it and I talked to my husband and other people that knew their stuff. And I just couldn't get I just couldn't do it. And so um, finally, uh, the breakthrough came when I was uh, listening to Ron Pierce, mm-hmm. who's a professor at Biola and Talbot yes. um, Seminary. And he uh, does a, a class um, online in YouTube that is free on, mm-hmm. and on, it's gender, mm-hmm. on gender. And he is, he's a super great teacher. So anyway, so I went and looked at what he had to say about First Corinthians. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me the thing that just blew it open for me. And so um, I even wrote him a thank you letter. I was so, so thankful. I, he didn't know me or anything, but I just wanted him to know how, how much it meant to me. Because what, what I wanted was a, a big picture view before we zeroed in and started getting lost in the trees. And so mm-hmm. my problem was this, Paul makes these statements and he says these three things And then finally, the middle thing about the head coverings. And then he says three more statements, which actually are opposite or contradictory to the three statements he made earlier. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand why he would uh, compete with himself. Like, what was Mm -hmm. he doing there? And it took a while to figure out that this was something that's, and this might be a little bit too detailed, but it's it's a a chiastic structure used Mm -hmm. very frequently in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Paul used it quite a bit and it's a way of setting up an argument. Yes. And I just want to put in when we had Bruce Fleming on last year, he was talking about the chiastic structure too. That's also in Ephesians five. So yes, very much. Yeah. Very common that device that Paul uses. And it was very common in Greek literature. Very, very. Now we don't spot it right away because we're, you know, that's not our thing, but Mm -hmm. definitely back in ancient Greek times, it was certainly a thing. So anyway, so I started looking at the statements in terms of a and what is yeah yeah, and what's a chiasm? So you know the letter chi is an X, Mm -hmm. and so what you see in this X is it kind of goes in and then comes back out again on Mm -hmm. the half of the X, and that's what a chiastic structure is. Um, I wish I had a PowerPoint slide I could show you better, and I I didn't think I was going to need that. So sorry, (laughs) but anyway, I'll I'll try to do it orally here and see what happens. Okay, so. Um, so the first, the first, uh, statement he makes, and it's, it's, um, and I'm going to call that statement a right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the one that's furthest over. And it says, now I praise you because you hold firmly to traditions, just as I've handed them down to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. That's statement a, Mm -hmm. then he goes to statement B. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Mm-hmm. Now, statement C, man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. 
-hmm. Okay, and then finally, here's the center. So it's gone, let me see if I do this backwards, A, B, C. So they're, they're kind of lined up this mm -hmm. way. Okay, and then statement D is the center, which is the main point of the argument. Mm -hmm. And it is, therefore, the woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then he says this, however, in the Lord, and he makes a C statement that contradicts the C statement above. So I'll call that C prime. Okay. Okay. So, um, and so in the statement above, it, it, or a statement below matching C, it says, neither is woman independent of man nor man independent of woman. All things come from God. Now in the statement mm -hmm. C above was woman came from man. Right. And he, but, he contradicts that now. See how it's contradicting? Yeah. That's what was driving me crazy. Then mm -hmm. he says, and for B, which is matching a B above, B prime, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does even nature itself not teach you that if a man has long hair, it is the honor, is, it will dishonor him. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. For her hair is given it to her as a covering. Mm -hmm. so now he's contradicting what he said about head coverings in, in, up above. So and that's, that's B prime, right? Contradicting the, the B, head covering. Yeah. B. B. Plain. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yep. okay. And then finally, A prime says, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. So you've got this. And he, before he was saying about traditions with letter A over there. So these mm -hmm. statements match up as they go along, but they're contradictory. Mm -hmm. He answers the B prime or A prime, C prime, all are, um, contradicting the statements he had on a b and c right well that was driving me crazy <laughs> and the thing is that one statement um, at the beginning that he makes about and this is the one that i'm sure everybody asks you about on your podcast mm -hmm. christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and god is the head of christ mm -hmm. so i can get christ is the head of every man i can get christ uh, uh, or that uh, uh a man is the head of woman sure that can happen but then it says, and God is the head of Christ. So, okay, wait. <laughs> yeah. Christ is God. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so that's where I was stumbling. I was just like, well, how can this be? As a matter of fact, some of the um, people who are on the other side of this women's issue, they believe that a doctrine, a teaching called the eternal um, subordination of the son to the father. Mm -hmm. And they believe that, oh, yes, Christ is equal to God, but he is subordinate mm -hmm. um, to God. That's not equal. That's no, and, that, and, that, and that's actually a heresy. <laughs> that's that's specifically against like the Council of Nicaea. Yes. Figured that out in the 300s, right. that that's not kosher. That's not good. That ain't we ain't doing that. And yet we're <laughs> yeah. bringing it back. Because, yeah. And yet we're bringing it back. Well, because yeah. it backs up a position on women. See? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, you know, I started looking and thinking, what what is that? Why did. Paul say that. And so the, the, the word that Paul uses for head is actually kephale. Mm -hmm. And kephale, there's two words that are translated head in the New Testament, Greek words. One is kephale and, um, and the other is arche. And arche is like absolute authority. You have to obey no matter what. Talked about head of, head of the army, head of the yes, army, head yes. of a corporation. Generals, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's RK, but he doesn't use that word. He uses kephale, which means can mean leadership, of course, but it's a different kind of leadership. It's it's going in by example. It's it's leading um, in that way, uh, putting themselves out front 
to be at most risk, that kind of an idea. Um, or it, it can mean source, you know, com comes from. And of course, mm -hmm. God sent the sun, so that mm -hmm. could mean that there. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but but um, but then I started looking at this thing, and I thought I went all the way back to chapter seven in First Corinthians, and in chapter seven, Paul starts answering questions that they had written to him in a previous letter. Right. Okay. We don't have that letter, um, yeah. but but he's answering the questions because of that, and and so. The first thing he says, now concerning the things you wrote, and yeah. he starts in chapter seven and starts answering their question. And this is something that we talked about on a previous podcast, specifically about first Corinthians seven, where one of the issues that was going on in Corinth was celibacy. Yes. Um, and so a lot of what, like we use, we use the first Corinthians seven verses to say that you're not allowed to say no to sex and you need to have frequent sex. But Paul wasn't arguing that Paul was arguing against the idea of marital celibacy, not saying you get sex whenever you want. So we have actually talked about this on a previous podcast too, that a lot of first Corinthians was actually Paul answering their questions. It wasn't right. trying to make these big doctrinal statements. <laughs> right. And he goes on and, and, and talks about eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. He talks about mm -hmm. how they met together. So there's all these different things um, that were he was discussing from mm -hmm. their questions. Well, now we get to this chapter 11 and he says, and he starts it off again. And, you know, now I praise you because, and he's, he starts this thing. What if he's stating their statements they sent to him, mm -hmm. their understanding of things. And then they got to that conclusion about women wearing head coverings. And then Paul says, okay, I understood you said that, but however, yeah. in the Lord, yeah. and he starts making those three contradictory statements. And so mm -hmm. I really believe that's what was going on there. The problem is in Greek, there's no punctuation. So there's no quotation marks. I mean, if you had been mm -hmm. writing in the 20th century, we would have had nice quotes around that and he would, yeah. he would have known he was quoting and there's no way to do that. But I, I feel like we can we can assume that since they're contradicting, the one set is contradicting the other, that he wouldn't, mm -hmm. why would he do that? It would just add confusion. But he was yeah. clarifying where they stood and then talked about however in the Lord, this is how it should be. Yeah. And that's actually really important because this idea, a lot of people make a big deal about how man is the image of God, but woman is the image of man. Yes. And so we were, we were made to, to reflect men. We were made to support men and on our own, mm -hmm. we're not important. And, and, um, Nancy Lee DeMoss, I think has written a lot about that. Uh, there's a lot of, of Christian writers, female Christian writers who have, who have really pushed this idea that, that women are the image of man, not the image of God, that men were made more in the image of God than we are. And that's simply not biblical. Not if you look at Genesis. Yeah. <laughs> because in Genesis one, it says that they were equally made in the image of God, mm -hmm. uh, male and female, he created them, but in his image. And then he turns around and he says to them, you know, you are to have dominion over the earth and, and, and uh, over the animals and that kind of thing. But he's talking to both of them. Yes. So there was no distinction between man and woman when it came to God and how he viewed them. Right. And I, I, I think that's so important for us yes. to see because um, there's been, there's been a lot of hurt caused, I think. Yes. And you, you experienced this too, right? Growing up, you just want to love God. You just want to serve God. <laughs> and yet, at every turn, you're told that, well, you can't do that because you're a woman. Right. Or he didn't make you to do that. Right. And that can be very hurtful. And then if you, if you try to express that you're hurt, people say, well, you just don't believe the Bible. 
like, right. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's a matter of verses that have been taken out of context and plucked out and, and then grouped together to form a doctrine. But the problem is, is that nobody is looking at the context of each of the verses that they've just plucked. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the context of what's going on in the chapter, what's going on in the book um, mm-hmm. and in the whole New Testament, whatever, if we're not looking at the context, then we're going to miss the purpose it has. We used to say in seminary, I love it when the Bible backs me up. Yeah. <laughs> That's not how you approach scripture. Yeah. You're supposed to do what the Bible says. Not exactly. Bible says say. Exactly. So, and we knew we were joking, honest in seminary, but you know, just that idea of we, you can't approach scripture with a preconceived idea and then expect to find something new because all the time in your head, you're going, I know this, I know this, I know this. And so you're not open to the Holy Spirit leading in any other direction or make, helping you to understand because you're already sitting on something that you already firmly believe. So I really feel like what we need to do as, as believers that have the Holy Spirit in them, who's ready to guide and teach <laughs> that we study those passages for ourselves mm-hmm. uh, because maybe what we were taught was incorrect. Because what we were taught were interpretations, which is exactly what my book is. It's interpretations. Mm-hmm. The Bible is the word of God and it's absolutely accurate, mm-hmm. but interpretation is human. So mm-hmm. it's not and right. So we have to be really careful, you know, about that. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and one more thing about, about how so many of these pastors have been used to hold women down. And yet often the, um, the interpretations that we give these passages contradict even each other. And you can see that in first Corinthians 11 and first yeah. Corinthians 14 is that in first Corinthians 11, the whole point <laughs> is women praying and prophesying mm-hmm. in public mm-hmm. at a church service. That is what is being discussed is whether they do it with a head covering or without. And, you know, in, in this conversation, Paul brings up, as you're saying, you know, that, that Christ is the head of man and, man is the head of what, like he bring, Paul brings all of this up, but it's, it's in the context of trying to figure out if women are supposed to wear head coverings when they pray and prophesy in public. But then three chapters later, you look at first Corinthians 14, (laughs) where it says women must stay silent in church. And, you know, Beth Allison Barr actually has um, an interpretation of that passage where she makes a similar thing where he's actually quoting what is commonly said. That that's not, that's not his belief either, but he's quoting what is commonly believed in the culture and then he's, he's dismantling it. And so once again, we, you can't both believe that women are supposed to silent church and also believe that women can pray and prophesy in church. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, that, that's a, a passage, that verse that you're talking about is super context is important yeah. um, because Paul starts this argument where people are, are the, the problem with the Corinthian church was they were in the Corinthian society and the Corinthian society was all about getting honor and prestige. So there were people in the church who were trying to do that. And they were stepping over the backs of each other, trying to make it to the top. And you see it entirely through the entire book. He mm-hmm. starts with what preachers each person follows. And they were all following somebody that they thought would give them the most prestige. And, right. and he goes on to all these other things. Well, he gets to this, to the gifts And one of the ways that they were mistreating each other was that they were valuing some gifts above others. And one of the gifts that they all thought was the most spiritual and Mm -hmm. the most, you know, commendable was speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably came from their background uh, where speaking in tongues was part of a thing in some of the pagan religions that would be, um, you know, that there were Mm -hmm. 
it's given the same kind of value. They're really spiritual. They speak in tongues closer to the gods. Right. So anyway, but for whatever reason, they were saying it. And then he said, there's another problem. This is all about their meeting. Another problem was that there were prophets, a lot of prophets or many anyway, and they, they were wanting to talk about what God had impressed on their heart. But once a prophet got the mic, I know there weren't any mics back then, <laughs> and he would start talking, he wouldn't stop. He would just keep going and going and he would just hog it. Yeah. And there were other people waiting to give their prophecy, but he wanted to be the most important. Right. And then finally, the third thing he addresses is women asking questions out loud within the mm -hmm. meeting. Mm -hmm. And so, but every single one of those three groups, the tongue speakers, the prophets, and women that mm -hmm. he's dressing, he uses the word silent. It's like, oh. right. So he's not just telling women to be silent. Yeah. <laughs> and he's talking about men in the same ways. There were mm -hmm. men and women speaking in tongues. I'm sure there were, you know, men and women that were prophets. And so, you know, they needed to be silent. Why? Because they were hogging the stage mm -hmm. and they weren't allowing people to use their gifts to build up the body. And that's what the gifts are all about. They're not for us. They're not to make us feel good about ourselves. They're to build up others. Mm -hmm. And so the tongue speakers were building up themselves by making a big deal of speaking in tongues in front of everybody. And they didn't even worry mm -hmm. about interpretation or anything. They just wanted to show they could do it. Right. And then you got the prophets who were, you know, wanting to be the most important prophet. And so again, they were trying to build up themselves as the most important and not worrying about building up the church. Mm -hmm. And the women who had not been used to sitting through a kind of a, uh, a meeting like, mm -hmm. like the men had been, um, they were asking questions, but there was a, a whole thing in, in, in Greek culture at that time there was like a unspoken rule that when somebody was lecturing, if you had an intelligent question that showed you knew what you were talking about, you could ask it in the middle of a lecture. Mm -hmm. But if you didn't know what you're doing and you were just enjoying the sound of your own voice and you, you were actually disrupting the meeting instead of clarifying things. And so therefore you were expected to stay silent until you knew what you were talking about. Right. And I think that was what was going on. The women were loving the freedom that Christ had give them. And they were, you know, yelling out questions or making comments or whatever. And they didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. Because until, crazy. until this point, women wouldn't have been educated at all. No. Like this was the cool thing was in Christianity. Suddenly women can be a part of it. Yes. Like even in Greek culture, women weren't educated. So it wasn't just in Judaism and these aren't Jewish converts. These are, these are Greek Right. Um, converts. And so for the first time, women are actually included. <laughs> and so this is, and so it's like, how do we, how do we get women and men to learn together when this has never been done before? And so this was, this was a huge deal. Yeah. I'll tell you as somebody who has a, a gift of teaching, I would have been first up there making comments <laughs> and disrupting everything. So I, yeah. I can sympathize with those poor girls. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But, you know, that, but Paul's whole point was, look, every gift is important. He says that in chapter 12, you're all members of the same body. There's one head, that's Christ. Everybody mm -hmm. else, you're on equal ground. Everybody's given, been given a gift. And the gift is the Holy Spirit's choice, not mm -hmm. ours. And yeah. he decides who gets what. And then we are to use that gift not to make ourselves look good, but to build up the body of Christ. And when that's happening, it's a healthy, healthy church. Yeah. Amen. And so Paul could see it wasn't healthy. And that, so that's where that verse came from, but it's mm -hmm. pretty much the same instructions that he gave to the other two groups. If you look. 
yeah. if you do a word search on that silent, you'll yeah. see it. So it, again, another verse taken out of context. And what I've seen happen is people take first Timothy two, I suffer not a woman to teach mm-hmm. and they group it with woman should be silent in the church. And together that makes yeah. a foolproof doctrine that women should not be vocal at all. Yeah. Yeah. And again, let's remember the bigger context of what you just said about how the Holy Spirit gives gifts and it's to build up the body. (laughs) And this is what Paul was talking about is how we, the whole body could be built up and that includes women. And so I love this book. Again, the book is On Purpose, Understanding God's Freedom for Women Through Scripture by Julie Zine Coleman. I will put a link to that in the podcast notes that go along with this. Um, Julie, any last words on, on what you want people to take away from your book? Take another look. Take another look at the passages. Uh, put aside what you've always believed or have been taught and take another look and look at the context. Look at the, you know, the things that you would do to, to be able to get a good interpretation. Um, on my website, juliezinecoleman.com, I have all kinds of study tips on, on taking a passage apart and really looking at each each component. And I've got some free, um, I call them cheat sheets, but it's, you know, different things you can do to open a passage up for yourself. Um, and just, you know, pray, pray over those passages, ask the Holy Spirit for help because it really matters. We're talking about not just half the church. We're talking about the whole church, because mm-hmm. if we are limiting women unnecessarily, we will be endeavoring to walk on one leg in the church mm-hmm. instead of the two we were given. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we want to see health and we want to see growth and we want to see God really on the move, we need to incorporate all members in, in, in being able to um, perform their gifts as they were designed to do. Amen. Thank you. Well, that's great. I was so glad to have you on and thank you for writing this book. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Well, thanks for helping me be on the show. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> so appreciated Julie and Kristen making time this week. You know, it, it can be really hard when you are in a church and you start to wonder, does God really care about women? And what I just want all of you to know is that he does. And if you're in a church where you're feeling like he doesn't, please read some of these amazing biographies of women like Josephine Butler or Catherine Bushnell, or read a book like On Purpose and get a glimpse of what God really thinks and how maybe, just maybe, we've misunderstood Jesus's heart. And if we can get back to Jesus's heart, the church is going to be a lot healthier because Jesus cares about us. And if you're feeling like he doesn't, something's wrong and lean into that. Ask the questions. He's big enough to handle them. And I believe he will point you to some amazing resources, even like the ones we've mentioned this week, that can put you on the right track. So thank you for joining us. Tune in next week for some more Women That History Forgot in our great series of Women Heroes of the Faith. Bye-bye.